Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Executive Vice President of Third Way, Matt Bennett. And we are delighted to be back. We picked a heck of a week to be off. (laughs) Trump was indicted, huge explosion of news, but we will do our best to catch up. But first off, I want very much to address something that is out there. It's been a little bit below the radar, but Matt has been following it very closely, namely... There is an effort by a group that calling itself No Labels that is launching or attempting to grease the skids for a third party candidate. They have a $70 million war chest. They've already achieved ballot access in a number of states, Arizona, Colorado, Alaska, and Oregon. It has signature gathering efforts underway in other states. And the idea is to present a third option beyond Democrat and Republican, a moderate political choice for those who dislike both Trump and Biden. So Matt, fill us in on this. Who's behind it and why are you so exercised about it? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Mona. Bill Galson can talk a little bit more about who No Labels is. Actually, Bill's been very involved with them until recently because I think like me, he's quite concerned about this presidential bid. But No Labels started and has done quite a bit of good work in the center trying to bring Republicans and Democrats together, especially in Congress. However, in the last year or so, they have been aggressively fundraising and then doing work on the ground, as you've noted, to gain ballot access to run candidates for president and vice president in 2024. In fact, exactly a year from now, they are planning a convention in Dallas to nominate their ticket to run as third-party candidates. And the reason that we're so worried about this is not because we think that their ticket, no matter who's on it, could actually win the election. They absolutely, positively cannot win the election. No third-party candidate has won a single electoral vote in 50 years, and no third-party candidate including one who has chiseled into Mount Rushmore, has ever come close to winning an election. (laughs) You're referring to Teddy Roosevelt. Exactly. So (laughs) our concern is not that they will win. Our concern is that they will serve as a spoiler. And what has us most concerned is that there's all kinds of evidence that they would serve as a spoiler benefiting the Republican ticket, which at the moment looks like it's going to be Trump and hurt the Democratic ticket, which is almost certain to be Biden and Harris. So that's why we're so worried about this. Can you explain the role of Mark Penn? I will attempt to do so. Uh, So Mark is the husband of Nancy Jacobson, who is the founder and CEO of No Labels. Mark is a very well-known commodity in politics. He was a pollster originally, and back in the 1990s was the pollster to President Clinton and served as a close advisor to Clinton through various campaigns and, and other things. Mark drifted away from the Democrats for various reasons. And he now runs a large public company called Stagwell, and they own a polling firm and other political consulting firms that are doing work for No Labels. So I don't know the extent of Mark's activity directly with No Labels. He is not a member of their team, but obviously he's married to the CEO and his firm does a lot of work for them. Bill Galston, you, as Matt mentioned, were involved in founding No Labels, but you have since distanced yourself from them. So let me just read you a quote from Joe Manchin, who people have been talking about as a possible no labels candidate in 2024, and then have you respond. Quote, if enough Americans believe there is an option and the option is a threat to the extreme left and extreme right, it will be the greatest contribution to democracy, I believe. I don't rule myself in and I don't rule myself out. Well, what's wrong with that, Bill? Well, In principle, nothing. In practice, everything. It is because I agree with the fundamental analysis suggesting that an independent bipartisan candidacy would hurt the Democratic nominee more than the Republican nominee. It is 
because of that, that I protested against the decision to proceed down this road internally until it became clear to me that my internal advocacy would not succeed, at which point I thought that I had no choice but to publicly distance myself from the organization. The no labels effort, I think, responds to a genuine problem, and that is that the polarization of the two political parties that has occurred over the past two generations has left a lot of people in the middle feeling quite dissatisfied. But as Matt points out, not symmetrically dissatisfied. And there's a very simple reason for that. If you look at standard analyses of the ideological composition of the two political parties, 75% of Republicans call themselves either conservative or very conservative, but only 50% of Democrats call themselves liberal or very liberal. The space for moderates is substantially greater inside the Democratic Party than it is inside the Republican Party, which is why you have people like Larry Hogan declining even to put themselves forward for the Republican nominee. These are the sorts of people who were the heart and soul of the party a couple of generations ago. And now there's barely enough oxygen in the room for them to breathe, let alone thrive. We have for 150 years had essentially the same two-party system. A lot of Americans aren't thrilled with the two political parties for reasons that I can not only understand but assent to, but in my judgment, there is a profound asymmetry between the two political parties. You can disagree with a lot of democratic policies, but I think it's pretty clear that they don't represent the same sort of threat to constitutional institutions that the Republican Party enthralled to Donald Trump does. And so it is difficult for me or anyone likely to be neutral. Linda, it would seem that the arguments that Matt and Bill have made are unassailable. I would just throw in another little number here. You know, a few votes in either direction can make an enormous difference. In 2000, the state of Florida was decided for George W. Bush by 537 votes. Not 537,000, mind you, but 537. And in that year, Ralph Nader was the third party candidate. He got 97,000 votes in Florida. So, you know, a third party can be a real spoiler. And I'm just wondering, what can these people be thinking when they must know that this pipe dream about actually electing a moderate is just that, and yet the chances are it's going to improve the chances of Trump returning to the Oval Office. Yeah, I don't know. You're asking me to look into the minds of people who are politically ambitious, and despite having run for office myself, I don't fully understand that mindset. I mean, I look at Joe Lieberman, who is somebody I have always admired, you know, and he's now doing something that in the end might help elect, as you suggest, Donald Trump. Maybe Donald Trump will, you know, have been convicted and be having to serve from jail. I don't know. It's just the whole thing is so utterly ridiculous. And I understand the frustration that the two-party system, particularly the way it is now constituted, does not give us proper choices. We get candidates who skew to their base in both parties and end up with the great middle of America, where I think most of the people on this this panel find themselves without candidates who represent our views and who will promote the kind of policies that we approve. So I understand that frustration, but it is the system we have. And given the fact that this is not even about whether or not it is theoretically possible for a third party candidate to secure enough popular votes. We're talking about electoral votes. And I noticed that No Labels has already secured enough signatures, I guess, to get on the ballot in Colorado and Arizona and some other states. Those are states where a third party candidate could make a meaningful difference. And certainly when you look at the other battleground states, this movement 
to put people on the ballot is going to draw votes away. Will it draw some votes away from Donald Trump? Maybe a few, presuming he's the nominee. But the main group of people that it's going to draw ballots from are going to be the Democrats. I've stated before, my preference is to have a Republican nominee that I can support. Right now, I don't see that happening. Damon, one more little factoid, which is the way we elect our presidents with the Electoral College. If there's a tie in the Electoral College, it gets thrown to the House of Representatives where Republicans have a distinct advantage because the voting is by state delegation, not by members of the body. So there's that too. But same question for you as I posed to Linda with one more addendum, and that's this. Isn't it better for people who are feeling this frustration with our system, and I feel it myself, that we get these extreme, well, I don't think Biden's extreme, but the primary system tends to yield up much more extreme candidates than need be, that we reform the primary system rather than trying to do something like this that could be so destructive. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to be affiliated with a podcast like this one that's done some work along those lines by having on guests who talk about, for instance, ranked choice voting, final five voting. Nonpartisan primaries. Yeah, nonpartisan primaries. There are various institutional tweaks and more dramatic changes to our electoral system that could be instituted that would structurally disincentivize extremism and disadvantage extremism candidates relative to more moderate ones, whereas our current system, at least where in most states you have single-party primaries, tends to have the opposite effect. It incentivizes the extremists because the people who show up to vote in relatively low turnout primaries tend to be the most engaged and among the more polarized of the voters. I have some apprehensions that I've expressed here and elsewhere in the past about ranked choice voting and would prefer something like we have two-stage elections like we've seen in Georgia with some of these special elections over the last two cycles. But that's a very different kind of debate and with lower stakes than what we're talking about here. I mean, if you look back in American history, there just is no reason to think that something like this can work as anything other than a spoiler. If you want to have a third party and to go that route toward political reform, there are really two ways that it could possibly go and have some kind of a positive effect. And that one would be to have a regionally based party and then can play into the electoral college and actually create blocks of states that stick together. We're in no position right now for something like that to happen because most of our political fissures are are not about states or macro regions. They're about mostly urban-rural divides that are in every single state in the country. The other way to do it is to go slow and try to build up from the ground. If you really believe we need a third party, you should be using your resources to go into local areas and running candidates for House seats or even state legislatures. But that's, of course, something that requires patience and time. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you do between 2020 and 2024. And you also don't get to raise $70 million by doing it that way. You have to start small and going door to door and not just trying to get a signature in order to get on a statewide ballot, but actually running actual candidates under a new party name and over many electoral cycles in a row trying to build that into a broader movement. And again, that takes real commitment and a real kind of modesty about what you're going to achieve in the short term. And I'm afraid that our political culture does not reward that kind of long game these days. Yeah. Okay, Matt, last question for you. Do you have a sense, I mean, there's been, not just on this podcast, there has been some pushback 
against the Snow Labels effort. Do you have any sense of whether they might be sensitive to criticism or rethinking, or can this train be derailed? I think it can. I think Bill's departure from No Labels was important. The Washington Post reported it when it happened. Bill was one of their central pillars, certainly coming from the Democratic side. So that kind of thing really matters. The other thing is they become very sensitive to the charge that we and others have been leveling, that all they're doing is providing a spoiler and not a real choice. They've written several op-eds basically saying, no, no, we're not spoilers, but obviously they are. And I want to just make one other point. As Linda noted, the overwhelming likelihood is if they are to act as a spoiler here, it would be to help Trump or the Republican candidate. And the reason we know that is if you look at Trump's performance in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the three blue wall states that were decisive in 2016 and then again in 2020. He won all three in 2016. He lost all three in 2020. However, his share of the vote in all three states went up from 2016 to 2020. How is that possible to go up and share and lose? It's because in 2016, there were third party candidates on the ballot, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, and in 2020, there were not. So the people that selected those third-party candidates went perhaps reluctantly with Biden in 2020, but they didn't have a choice. If you give them the option to opt out, the people that don't like either Biden or Trump are going to do so. And that's why we're very certain it would hurt Biden much more than Trump. All right. I said that that was the last word, Matt, but Bill, you wanted to make one more point. Actually, two more points, each in one sentence. Okay. First of all, I am sure that this effort will be on all 50 state ballots. It's well-funded and well-organized. Second, there's nothing cynical about this effort, semicolon. People behind it genuinely believe that the popular disaffection from the two parties is so deep and so pervasive that such an effort can actually win. All right. This was also the week following Trump's indictment in which he did his triumphant return to Fox News. And so we had the intersection of stupid and appalling that seems to be the way we live now. For a man who is caricatured as an extremist, we think you'll find what he has to say moderate, sensible, and wise. Right. Well, it was the usual word salad from Trump, but it had more, I would say, than the typical dollops of lickspittle fawning over dictators. So let's hear him describe his feelings about the leaders of China, North Korea, and Russia. These are top-of-the-line people at the top of their game. President Xi is a brilliant man. If you went all over Hollywood to look for somebody to play the role of President Xi, you couldn't find it. There's nobody like that. The look, the brain, the whole thing. We had a great relationship. How smart is Kim Jong-un? Top of the line. You know, people say, oh, this and that. Really smart. You know, when you come out and as a young man at 24, 23, even though he sort of inherits it, most people, when they inherit, they lose it. And that's easy stuff. He took over a country of very smart people, very, very energetic people, very tough people at a very young age. And he has total dominant control. That's not easy. These are these are very smart. Putin, very smart. Now, he's had and and probably a bad year. Don't forget that whole thing is not if he took over all of Ukraine. And what are we going to do? Because Biden is so committed to Ukraine. What happens if it's a not winnable war? So there you have it, the really loathsome affection for dictators, the scattered thoughts, the inability to stay with one coherent idea from the beginning of a sentence until the end of a sentence, and this guy is back on top as the leading candidate to be the Republican nominee. So anybody who wants to jump in, please do. I'm going to jump in, Mona. Yeah, please, Linda. What's with the weird breathing, the snorting, the sniffing? Is it COVID or cocaine, I wonder? I don't know. It's up to you. Maybe our audience can tell us. Maybe experts out there (laughs) can know. 
Right? <laughs> <laughs> people are talking. Lots of people are saying, sir, sir, <laughs> why are you snorting? Yes. But, you know, look, we can make fun of this all we want. But the fact is, you know, you started by asking about how could Tucker Carlson, who's not only said, you know, that he hates him with a passion, he's called him demonic, all these things. But you have to remember that this is a closed universe. The people, by and large, who watch Fox News are protected from any information about Tucker Carlson's texts or uh, Laura Ingram's texts or Maria Bartiromo's crazy texts. I mean, they're just protected. They don't know about this stuff because they don't read normal newspapers. They don't get their news from other sources. And so he can pretty much do what he wants. But, you know, this idea that there was this love affair between Xi and <laughs> Trump, what about all those tariffs? What about how China was ripping us off? And we had to punish them by taxing our own people, making them pay more for goods that were produced in China. I mean, it's such crazy stuff, but sadly, it is what the Republican base seems to crave. Well, okay. Speaking of the Republican base, there's more to discuss this week about that. So Damon, it's kind of a long story and I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on it, but if you can give us a precy of what happened with Greg Abbott in Texas with this case of a murderer that he is talking about pardoning. Yeah, it is a kind of a complicated case. The very short version of it is that at a Black Lives Matter protest in 2020, a guy named uh, Daniel Perry posted on social media that uh, he was very angry about these protests and he was going to go shoot someone at them. And then it just so happened that when he was working for Uber that same day, he drove to the protests and drove into the protests, which then led one of the protests who, this being Texas, was carrying AK-47-style rifle, walked over to ask Perry to please back up and stop driving forward into the crowd, which Perry took as an occasion to fire his own weapon at this gentleman and ended up killing him. There was a trial, and Perry was found guilty uh, by a jury of his peers last Friday. And the very next day, Governor Greg Abbott announced that as soon as the pardon board in Texas, all of whose members are picked, by the way, by the governor, as soon as they sent a pardon request to his desk, Abbott would sign it and basically release this individual before he even begins serving his term, potentially, which is a kind of complete invalidation of the jury system and effectively saying that even though Republicans are going around the country berating progressive district attorneys for being too lenient on criminals, here's a case where the governor of Texas wants them to be more lenient. They were insufficiently willing to let this guy get away with murder. It's a very, very bad sign. It points, I think, and as I said in a Substack post that I wrote this week, that it is an expression of the Republicans' increasing desire to live in a country where there are two standards of justice. There's not the rule of law for everyone. There is, in effect, the rule of law for people like them, and then the rule of law for anyone who doesn't like them. And Republicans treated with kid gloves by prosecutors and juries and those who protest against Republicans or Republican policies should be treated with maximal scrutiny and thrown in jail and prosecuted with the key thrown away. There's no attempt even to come up with an explanation for how this could be an expression of the rule of law. Instead, there's a kind of presumption that, well, of course, this guy was in the right. He had every right mm -hmm. to stand his ground and shoot this protester who came over with a gun. No one ever thinks or talks through the fact that, well, if that's true, couldn't the person who's in the protest and sees a car drive in, couldn't he shoot first and ask questions later as well? This has nothing to do with principle. What it is is the elevation of bad faith and double standards into a kind of higher principle of all public law, which is, of course, no public law at all. It's a kind of return to the justice of the Wild West. And it's atrocious. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the story. And it's a depressing one. 
Now, atrocious is a good word for it, Damon, and also atrocious is the fact that both Abbott and the Fox people and others on the right are lying about what happened. They're saying that the person who was murdered, the victim here, Garrett Foster, pointed his weapon at Daniel Perry, which none of the witness testimony in the case support. He apparently did not aim his weapon. And so, but of course, you know, it also raises the question, gee, all this open carry stuff can lead to problems in confrontations such as this. You know, people can get trigger happy if everybody's carrying a gun and feel endangered. And speaking of that, and it turned to you, Matt, in the wake of piling up more and more mass shootings in this country, so many that they seem to come one on the heels of another. We haven't finished getting the details of one before, up oh, breaking news, there's another. In this environment, legislatures all over the country are passing laws, Republican legislatures, to loosen gun restrictions, permitless concealed carry in Florida. Iowa did that, Tennessee. It's kind of breathtaking. What, what's your view? It truly is. I mean, I've been working in gun safety for more than 20 years, and i never ceased to be astounded by how callous and completely divorced from reality Republicans can be on this issue. I will say, though, that we might, and I would emphasize might, be at a tipping point moment on guns. We haven't had a really significant federal gun law enacted since 1994 when Clinton signed the assault weapons ban, which sunsetted 10 years later. Before that, uh, the Brady Act passed in 1993. We did have a pretty good bill that passed last year that Biden signed, but it was modest. We haven't had a really significant one in a long time. That's entirely 100% because Republicans have stood in the way. And as you say, in the states, they've been going the opposite direction and loosening gun laws. We might be at a tipping point because it is possible that the politics of guns have shifted in ways that those Republicans are late to understand. And this has been known to happen. You know, about 10 years ago, around same-sex marriage, the politics shifted extremely quickly. There were four states that passed same-sex marriage ballot initiatives, and all of a sudden the dominoes fell very fast. Senators and others started expressing support, and then the Supreme Court ruled. Similar thing is happening with abortion. It is possible that guns are moving in that direction. In the last week, days apart, we had mass shootings that took the lives of close friends of the governors of two states, the governors. The governor of Tennessee's wife was supposed to have dinner with one of the victims of the shooting in the Nashville school that night. And Governor Lee signed an executive order strengthening the background check system after that. It is possible that people have had it. The fact that almost every public school child in America, and many of the private school kids too, go through lockdown drills, which terrifies them and consequently their parents. There's almost 350,000 people that have been in a school or a university that has been in a school shooting. 350,000. One in five Americans have close personal contact with someone who has been shot. This may have reached a point where Americans are ready to really push Republicans. And people have always been very supportive of tougher gun laws. They poll in the high 80s or low 90s, but they've been pretty apathetic about it. The people who really care the most are on the other side. But that may change and people may go from kind of supportive and apathetic to supportive and apoplectic about this and push Republicans to change. So, Bill Galston, feel free to comment on any of that, but I'd also invite you to comment on the two Justins. Another really boneheaded move by Republicans this past week was that after a heated debate about gun control in the Tennessee legislature, and including some behavior by the members that was disruptive, the Republican-controlled legislature voted to strip both Justin Pearson and Justin Jones of their seats. And they nearly removed a third lawmaker who happens to be white, but they failed by one vote. So that's a great look. They leave the white lady and they expel the two Justins, who, by the way, are coming right back because their communities are sending them back. So comment on anything you like, Bill. <laughs> well, first of all, I liked 
the ripoff slogan to Justin's supporters promptly unveiled, no Justin, no peace. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I hadn't heard that. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> those of us who are veterans of the 1960s had to chuckle at that one. When it comes to egregious racial politics, I'm afraid that substantial portions of the Republican Party are just tone deaf. And they seem unable to imagine how their actions are going to look to the rest of the country and how they bring discredit to their party in the ranks of Americans who are open to many Republican policies, but really wonder whether Republicans are adequately committed to an even marginally inclusive society. This is the sort of thing that I believe over a period of a generation, or perhaps even less, will work against the long-term interests of the Republican Party. I do not expect this to last indefinitely, but it's more than a bad look when it does. It's really, really bad politics. You know, Matt Bennett was a Republican for decades, and I will tell you that it's my impression that they think that because they admire people like Clarence Thomas and that they have people in their party like Tim Scott, who announced his candidacy this week for something, my colleague Amanda Carpenter suggests he's really running for VP. But in any event, because of that, that proves that they are pure on the subject of race and don't need to worry about how it looks when you do something like that move in Tennessee. What's your impression? Yeah, this is the I have a black friend excuse. <laughs> and sure, they have one black friend in the Senate and one or two others in American politics, but not very many. I mean, Trump literally used to point out African-Americans in his audience. Oh, he used to plant them there right, right behind him. There was always the black guy. Exactly. And he, you know, <laughs> referred to them in patronizing and horrible ways. But the bottom line is Republicans have long done this and pretended that having this tiny fraction of a fraction of African-Americans who support them or who, who are part of their party means anything. And obviously it does not. I don't think that there is any realistic chance that Black voters, particularly Black women, are going to move towards Republicans. Black women are the iron core of the Democratic Party. There is, though, some risk that at least a small but meaningful percentage of Black men will peel away. Some did, actually, in 2020. And that is a huge concern. The bigger issue for Democrats is, while Many of us have been thinking quite a bit about non-college voters, uh, which is 70% of the electorate. The image that always pops to mind when you say non-college voters is like a white guy in a hard hat. But actually, one of our huge problems are voters of color without college degrees, especially Latinos, but also Asians and some black men and a few other groups. So we have got to not either take for granted the support of any demographic, but also make sure that Democrats are reaching out and talking to people in those demographic groups in ways that are distinct and caring and that we don't replicate the mistakes Republicans are making by taking anybody for granted or treating them like tokens. Okay, let's turn now to the other huge story of the last few days, namely abortion continues to roil American politics. We saw a really dramatic electoral result in Wisconsin with the liberal Democratic candidate winning in a state that usually goes by very narrow margins. She won her race for the Supreme Court by 11 points, which is a huge landslide. And her big selling point was abortion. So I'm going to start with you, Damon. The district courts this week have issued competing injunctions about mifeprestone, the abortion pill. And the thought is this is going to the Supreme Court. Your thoughts about abortion as a political matter? Well, it really is an example of what happens when the dog catches the car, <laughs> the perennial political metaphor. From Reagan's election, the party has been united in holding the line that 
Roe v. Wade was a bad decision, bad law, and should be overturned with the question returning to the states. And that was a very convenient position to hold, even aside from you know questions of principle. We'll give Republicans the benefit of the doubt that they truly did believe that, that it was a bad decision and contrary to the Constitution. But it allowed the party to be able to sound very pro-life while deferring the question of what they actually would do at the state level or with a federal law once it was no longer a constitutional issue. Well, the Supreme Court has helped to clarify that with the Dobbs decision. And now what you see is that just as Democrats struggle with a very active left-wing activist base and trying not to let those activists come to the forefront in public messaging for the party, similarly, Republicans have a pro-life activist problem. There are a lot of people among the most active members of the Republican Party are pro-life activists, and they want this Banned. They believe it is murder, many of them at any stage of gestation. And that even can include morning after pills, pills like we're being dealt with in these dueling rulings this week. And the thing is that as a political issue, that absolute pro life position is really only affirmed by something around 10% of the American public. And so you now have this situation where there are elected Republicans around the country who realize this is radioactive to be associated with such an extreme position. And yet, if they don't come out at least with rhetorical support for this extreme position, the activists on their own side will throw a temper tantrum. And I frankly don't see an easy way out of this for them. They're now in this kind of upside-down political world where if the activists get what they want, the party is going to get penalized at the ballot box. I think that they're trapped with their own activists. And I think that in a lot of close races we're going to see over the coming years, this could really make the difference. Women are activated by this. A lot of men who are not on the far right are activated Activated by it, and for very good reason, because these are real laws that are passing through state houses, and they are injunctions by Republican judges that are going to make it extremely difficult for women to get reproductive health care in a lot of states around the country. So it's a big mess for the right. Bill Galston, The Wall Street Journal, where you write a distinguished column, editorialized about this, saying, Republicans had better get their abortion position straight and more in line with where voters are, or they will face another disappointment in 2024. And then you have people like Ann Coulter screaming from the ramparts that Republicans are walking into a buzzsaw with their extremist positions on abortion. So um, there are some voices out there who are trying to sound the alarm But what do you think about Damon's point that the Republican Party doesn't seem to have an out here? In my experience, there is more education in the fabled kick of the mule (laughs) than, than there is in poll results. And I confidently predict that if this turns into the kind of issue that loses important elections for Republicans, that the party will find a way to adjust. I think the party is now in a period of shock and transition. This is not the first issue in living memory where Republicans have taken a position against something, but then when they were called upon to unify in favor of an alternative to the status quo, they proved completely unable to do so. That's where things now stand. But if Republicans start losing a series of statewide elections and referenda, they will change. It's just a question of how long it's going to take. Most people who've been following the polls on this issue for years have realized that most Americans are in the gray middle ground. Broadly speaking, interestingly, the kind of trifold distinction that Roe embodied half a century ago roughly tracks public opinion both then and now. 
Americans are broadly supportive of abortion rights in the first trimester. They are broadly unsupportive of abortion rights in the third trimester, and they disagree in various shades of gray about how to deal with the second trimester. A ban after 15 weeks, which used to be Governor DeSantis's position, Mm -hmm. was a pretty good approximation of the center of gravity of public opinion, and which is also remarkably nuanced on the question of the circumstances under which abortion can be justified. And so there's near total opposition to sex selection, for example, as a rationale for abortion. There is near total support for rape and incest and life of the mother as exceptions to a ban on abortion. And I don't think that either political party can be too far from the center of gravity forever and not pay a political price for it. The Roe decision had the effect of insulating both political parties from having to appeal to the electorate on this very important question. That protective legal insulation has now been stripped away, and both parties are going to have to figure out how, consistent with things that they deeply believe as a matter of principle, they can track public opinion more closely. Yes, I do agree about that. And I would just add that the Supreme Court in Roe, by taking the matter out of politics and making it a part of constitutional law, permitted both parties to go to extremes because there was no political price to be paid. And so during the intervening 50 years, you have had both sides taking ever more extreme positions. So that was an unfortunate effect of Roe v. Wade. Linda, I don't know if you saw this piece that Tim Alberta wrote in The Atlantic, but he was interviewing evangelical leaders. And he says that there's a lot of disenchantment with Trump because after the Dobbs decision came down and then the midterm results turned out the way they did, Trump put out a truth on his truth social, I hate even using that expression, where he said, people are blaming me, it wasn't my fault, it was the Republicans' fault for being too extreme on abortion. Alberta says that this has alienated evangelicals. I'm skeptical. What do you think? Well, uh, I am a little skeptical as well. And, you know, can I just circle back to something Bill said? Because, you know, I would like to believe that there is going to be a price to pay for extremism in either party, but in the Republican Party, since that's the one I'm most concerned about right now. But the fact is that most of these extremist positions are being taken in state legislatures. And with gerrymandering and the way in which districts are drawn in such a way that it is extremely difficult to defeat incumbents, and because not all voters are going to make abortion their prime issue, particularly in rural communities or where the voters skew older, I just wonder whether, you know, it's got to be the state legislatures that pay the consequences on this, not just people running it, you know, for Supreme Court or running statewide, because it is the state legislators that are enacting these extreme positions. And unless you begin to knock off the people who are promoting these most extreme positions, Yeah, it may happen eventually that the Republican Party pays a price, but a lot of harm can be done in the meantime. So I just wanted to get that point in. Okay. Matt, speaking of parties getting too far away from the center, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this week weighed in and said that the Biden administration should just ignore the injunction issued by a federal court. She did, and that's a terrible idea. I will point out that Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina, also said that. So it wasn't only the far left saying that, but yeah, that's nuts. We should not be ignoring federal court orders. That is Trumpian and something we should not emulate in any way. And it's another example of the far left, which has an enormous megaphone having an impact on the brand of the Democratic Party. You know, in the old days, somebody uh, AOC stature, which is to say, you know, somebody who'd been in Congress less than five years, would not be discussed on, you know, a political chat show. Podcast didn't exist, but because they would not have the megaphone. But 
in this age, a small number of pretty junior Democrats can have a huge impact on the way that people think about Democrats. If you look at Tim Scott's announcement video announcing his run for whatever, to your point, he shows pictures of four Democrats, Joe Biden, of course, but then he cuts quickly to AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there may be one other. And, you know, a junior House member would never have made the cut in the old days. But now, because the far left has this megaphone, when they do and say things like that that are not wise, it really does have an impact. And, and that's one of the things we're most worried about. All right. Thank you. Now we come to our final segment, the highlight or low light of the week. And we'll start with Damon Linker. Well, everyone here knows uh, from the introductions at the top of the podcast, I'm a Substack writer uh, with three newsletters there, actually, at the moment. And I was very happy this week after sort of enduring life at Elon Musk's Twitter, as if we didn't think this was possible, made the platform even worse by bringing back some of the worst characters who had been banned under the old regime and making various other rather obnoxious changes. But Substack has now gotten into the business of trying to launch its own social media brand called Substack Notes. It launched this week. The first people on it are people like myself who have Substack newsletters on the broader platform. But others are invited to join it as well, especially those who subscribe to at least one Substack. And that would include all the subscribers to The Bulwark who are listening to this uh, since the Bulwark appears on Substack. I don't want to be so unseemly as to directly implore you to come on in. The water's fine, but it is a nice alternative so far. It's very early. We don't know yet how big it can get, but so far, the first few days have been encouraging. Things seem a little more civil over there. People tend to be engaged with the ideas that bring them to Substack. That means there are fewer people who seem to be gathering around for the pure purpose of just being obnoxious mm -hmm. and getting notoriety for being jerks. Or being a mob. Or being a mob, yeah, joining into a mob and ganging up on people for either political or just, you know, for kicks. And again, it is early that I suppose might start happening there, but I have hope. We must have hope about reform and new things and advances in our civic culture. And right now, for this brief wink of an eye, notes seems like a pretty encouraging development. So I wanted to at least highlight it and call it my highlight of the week. Excellent. I have to take care of that and get on there in the next day or two. That's on my to-do list. Okay. Bill Galston. This, alas, is a no-brainer for me. It's my low light. A couple of experts that I talked to just a couple of hours ago pointed out that the most recent intelligence leak, which has been massively disruptive, not only to our allies, but to the war in Ukraine, is actually the fifth major leak since the beginning of the 21st century. And as of this morning, it turns out that the leaker was this 21-year-old kid, you know, in the Air National Guard who wanted to impress his 17-year-old friends who were in this gaming group together. What the bleep was a 21-year-old kid doing with access to hundreds upon hundreds of our most sensitive secrets? We can't go on this way. Note to the Department of Defense and to the Secretary of Defense and to the NSA, we can't go on this way. This is not a personal problem of defective characters. It's partly that, but it is a systemic structural problem that goes to the heart of some of the most important enterprises in national security and national defense on which the United States has been embarked. What is so hard to understand, darn it? I could go on in this rant, but clearly, unless we make changes, this is going to continue to happen. The circle of people allowed access to our most sensitive secrets must be narrowed dramatically, and that must happen quickly. And the consequences for senior officers who allow this kind of sloppiness to provide access to people 
who have no business having it, the consequences for those have to be really serious, career ending. Yep. Otherwise, we're not going to stop this. Uh, 100%. Thank you for that. Linda Chavez. Well, let me just <laughs> say, yes, kudos to uh, Bill on this. By the way, these documents that were leaked, they were photographed. So this kid, this 21-year-old kid, somehow was in a skiff, no supposedly secure facility where you can't take electronic equipment in. This was not somebody who, you know, was a brilliant hacker and hacked into the system and stole stuff. This is just such negligence. So let me point to my highlight of the week, and it is a highlight as opposed to a low light, and that is to an article that appeared in the Substack newsletter, The Unpopular. So another plug to the Substack. It's called The U.S. is Not Close to Doing Enough to Help Ukraine. It's written by Paul Schwenenson and makes the case that you know, one of the things the U.S. foreign policy is supposed to have done over the years is to support freedom. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we were supposedly in Iraq and also in Afghanistan. We expended a lot of blood and treasure in both of those places, supporting people who wanted freedom. Well, we're now being given the chance to support people who are actually fighting for freedom and who have demonstrated their commitment to freedom, unlike the people of Afghanistan and Iraq. And all we're being asked to do is to give some support by way of weapons and money. He makes a very good case why this is in our interest, and I commend the article to our listeners. Okay, thank you. Matt Bennett. You know, Mona, back in the days before Trump, when people like you and I used to disagree, you wrote a great book called Useful Idiots. And my low light <laughs> is the useful idiots of Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. We've already talked about how unbelievably ridiculous they were when it comes to those three dictators. But it's important to know that in Russia, the propagandists who are on their kind of primetime television shows and who every single night are promoting the Ukrainian war in just appalling terms, played large clips of that Tucker Carlson interview, which they had translated into Russian, and they made the case persuasively that Trump was pro-Putin, pro-war, and on the side of the Russians. It was not hard for them to make that case. And Carlson was nodding along and agreeing. So my low light of the week are the two useful idiots of Carlson and Trump helping the Russians in their barbaric war. Uh, amen. Now, Carlson has been very forthright about this, saying he is rooting for Russia. So there you have it. Okay, I don't know whether this is high or low. It depends on what happens. But I am going to recommend not an article, but another podcast. It is called Econ Talk, hosted by Russ Roberts. It's one of my favorites. And last week, he had a guest named Eric Howell talking about the threat to humanity from AI. And this was very interesting to me because I am aware that Russ Roberts, who's a very level-headed guy, has always taken the view in the past that the hysteria about the dangers of AI were overstated. And he used to snark that, you know, well, you can always unplug it. But this time, Roberts is not so smug and who is saying that actually the work of Eric Hole and others is giving him real pause about the threat here. So it's worth dwelling upon. I say it's neither a highlight nor a low light because it could be a highlight if we get busy about considering what possible regulation to impose or cautions to impose, or it could be a low light if indeed we are on the path to creating something that we cannot control. So with that, I would like to thank our guests, Nat Bennett and my panel. And also I want to mention our wonderful producer, Katie Cooper, who had editing help this week from Aaron Keene and our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri. Thank you to our audience. And we will return next week as every week. 